So our first reading is from Isaiah, uh, page 5, Isaiah 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with, tra his tra with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And our gospel reading comes from Acts, New Testament reading. Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? 
So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however appeared at Azotus and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, today is the last in our special Advent and Christmas series. We've been looking at the coming of Christ through the prism of key texts in the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah. Our theme is a phrase from the carol, O Holy Night, the weary world rejoices. We thought that might be opposite for this year. A holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Saviour's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious dawn. Today's text from Isaiah is a real shocker, literally. And yet, if I may say so, it goes to the heart of what the coming of Jesus means, I think, with more acumen than any other of the great texts in the series. We've left the best to last. And as we'll see, the events of Christmas are more like a fire engine or a paramedic rushing to your aid to rescue you than an official royal visit. More about that in just a moment. This is a scripture which, when you understand it, you will go your way rejoicing. Let me introduce it to you this way. Within a year or so of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, a man called Philip, a Jewish believer from a Greek background, kind of our patron saint, was on the wilderness road that goes southwest from Jerusalem down to Gaza and then beyond that down to Africa. He'd been told to go there by an angel. And as he stood there, a chariot slowly made its way heading south from Jerusalem on the way going south. And seated in the chariot was a high official from the court of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. He was in charge of her entire treasury. Ethiopia was a very powerful nation immediately to the south of 
Egypt. And the high official was returning there from Jerusalem where he had, though an Ethiopian, gone to worship the living God, the God of Israel. The official had with him something quite difficult for a non-Jew to have, get a hold of. A copy of a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he was reading it on his way home in his chariot. Reading it aloud, of course, because that's what everybody did in the ancient world. Reading it silent like we do was unheard of until much later. Philip was urged by the Spirit to go over to the chariot and join it. When he ran over, he heard the high official reading from Isaiah, and Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So the high official invited Philip up to join him on the, at the chariot to come and sit with him. So they continued down the Jerusalem to Gaza Road, sitting together, I assume with a driver at the front, moving on, possibly even some security as well, I suspect, someone that, that important. Now the passage that the high official was reading was this, I quote, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. That's right, it's part of the reading you heard for our first reading from Isaiah 53. Now, the high official's problem in understanding the passage is clear from the question he asked Philip. Tell me, he said, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or somebody else? And that's a good question. When you read here Isaiah 52, 53, you can't help but ask, who is this? This figure who's called my servant by the Lord and yet is anonymous, despised, disregarded like a sheep to be slaughtered, but also is exalted and lifted up. What did Philip say? Well, verse 35 of chapter 8 of Acts, then Philip began with that very passage and told him the good news about Jesus. We don't know what Philip said in detail, but when you look at Acts, you get an idea of the kind of pattern in which they did tell the good news about Jesus. I'm pretty sure that Philip started with the passage in Isaiah and then went on to tell the high official what had recently occurred with Jesus of Nazareth last year for him. This Jesus had been led like a sheep to the slaughter. In his humiliation, he had been deprived of justice. His life was taken from the earth, but God had raised him from the dead. The, Lord, the servant of the Lord had been raised and lifted up and highly exalted. In his name, forgiveness of sins was now proclaimed to the nations. He was now the Lord of all. Whatever it was that Philip said, it was enough for the high official noticing water, ordering himself, can I not be baptised right now? That is, baptised in the name of this Jesus. That is to call upon the name of this Jesus as Lord, and have his sins washed away. And what happened next is rather lovely, I find. Verse 38, he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. 
the weary world rejoices. A puzzled worshipper of the foreigner worshipper of the God of Israel, now going home, back down to his capital, Ethiopia, rejoicing. <clears throat> we don't know uh, what happened to him. Um, after that, it's unknown to us. What I can say is we do know that Ethiopia became one of the very first regions in the world to adopt Christianity. And to this day, the Christian faith is the largest religion in that African nation. So don't anybody tell you that Christianity is white. The Africans were way ahead of us. A weary world rejoices, <coughs> a high official rejoices. Now, we don't have time here to unpack Isaiah 52, 53 this morning. But we can see how it teaches us three things about Jesus, a saviour for the weary world. That he is anonymous, hidden and despised. Two, that this was the Lord's will. And three, that his sacrifice is our peace. Substitution. Look at this, a kindly... I don't know what they say about Andy Bell, he is a nice guy. Firstly, anonymous, hidden and despised. The first thing you notice is that this figure in Isaiah 53 and 2 is anonymous, hidden, despised. Those who see him do not know who he is or what he is. Although in Isaiah 52 verse 1, he's called by the Lord, my servant, we'll come back to this in just a moment, he doesn't look like the Lord's servant to anybody. Let me pick it up at verse 14 of chapter 52. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, so his appearance was defigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. Although in the next verse, hints of a revelation of something quite different to come. Verse 15, So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they've not heard they'll understand. But for now, this figure is written off, rejected, despised. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no mad beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Sometimes people uh, are so poor and weak and such losers, you just don't want to even look at them. So is this figure. If we jump down to the section the Ethiopian was actually reading in chapter 53, verse 9, you see this figure was a victim of gross injustice, and yet without protest. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a, a lamb to the slaughter, as a shearer before its shearers is silent, but did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was signed a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. They had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But the first thing we learn from this wonderful passage about Jesus is that he was anonymous, hidden and despised. That is what he was in his rejection and crucifixion. 
And it continued after that, by the way. Though he was raised from the dead, he was still despised. In 1 Corinthians, St. Paul reflects on what a problem it is that Paul found in his own life, proclaiming a crucified man as Lord. As Thomas Holland in his latest book, Dominion, which I strongly recommend, tells what it would have been like to hear the message of a crucified man as Lord in those days. I quote, it's in the quote section, that a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god, could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. So Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness or stupidity would be a good translation to those who are perishing. And in verse 22, he unpacks that uh, more f- further. The Jews demand signs, the Greek, the Greek look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. What a bummer, you know, that's all we got. Although, so in the cross and the proclamation of the cross, to so many, Jesus is anonymous, despised and, and hidden. Though it's not the last word, as Paul goes on to say, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Which leads directly to the second thing about Jesus we learn from Isaiah 52, 53. Second point, but this was the Lord's will. As I said at the beginning, this passage is a real shocker. And this is what I had in mind. This unknown, hidden, despised one is in truth the servant of the Lord. This is the Lord's will. And what's more, this figure will not be lost in death and shame, but exalted and uplifted. The opening words put it quite dramatically in chapter 52, 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's the opening words of this piece. It's even more striking when you realize that the words raised and lifted up is exactly how the Lord himself is described in the famous vision that Isaiah has of God in his temple. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, literally raised and lifted up, seated upon a throne, and his train filled the temple. How striking this servant will be described with the very language to describe the Lord God sitting upon his sovereign throne. It's towards the end of the passage, however, that the reality that this is the Lord's will that he suffer like this in such a degrading, anonymous way is driven home most powerfully. Having just said how bereft of help or recognition he was, in verse 10 and following, goes on to say that all this was the Lord's will and he will be vindicated. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will, will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering, offspring, and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By the way, this is one place where the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in the late 40s, have impacted our modern English translations. The phrase light of, of life is not in the classic Hebrew Bibles that we have. But in the Isaiah scroll, 
among the Dead Sea Scrolls, the word, there is the word light, which is missing in the other text. And scholars think that's most likely to be original Isaiah. The NIV translators have had the phrase of life to make sense of what they think the text means. So there you are. After he suffered, he'll see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured his life out unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Not only was this suffering the Lord's will for his servant, but the Lord will not abandon him, but exalt him, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. In other words, while the onlookers turned away from this anonymous, despised, hidden figure, whom they thought God was punishing, the Lord was doing his hidden work for them. It was a hidden work going on for them without them knowing or caring. And that aspect of the work of Christ, so vividly coming out of the Isaiah passage, is caught powerfully in the words of um, Scottish theologian at the turn of last century, Peter Taylor Forsyth, no relation, uh, also in the quote section. I quote, It was the great mass of Christ's work on the cross was like a stable iceberg. It was hidden. It was his dealing with God, not man. The great thing was done with God. It was independent of our knowledge of it. The greatest thing ever done in the world was done out of sight. The most ever done for us was done behind our backs. Only it was we who turned our backs. Doing this for us was the first condition of doing anything with us. End of quote. Which leads to our last of the three points, what we learn about Christ from Isaiah 52, 53. Not only is, th is this work of Christ anonymous, hidden and despised, and yet it is the Lord's will for him and for us, but thirdly, his sacrifice is our peace. Substitution. The passage is organised actually so that the central passage is the middle bit, which is 53, 4 to 6. It's sort of structured like that comes down and up. And that's the very heart of it all. And it's about this figure, this servant, substituting for the people, for us. Verse 4, surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. No, no. We thought, oh, he's suffering for his own sins. No, no. Completely wrong, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's substitution, you see. He pierced our transgressions. He crushed our iniquities. Punishment that brought us peace on him. His wounds, our healing. The New Testament often speaks about Christ dying for us or dying for our sins. But surprisingly, the most explicit statement of all that Jesus substitutes for us is in the Old Testament. That's why, for example, Paul in recounting the gospel 
<coughs> excuse me, to the Corinthians. He says, For I first received what I passed on to you with first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Here's the Scriptures. The climax, I believe, is verse 6. <clears throat> we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I don't know whether you're familiar with the way this text, Isaiah 53.6, is treated in Handel's magnificent oratorio, Messiah. Movement 26, in part two, chorus, all we like sheep. It is superb theology in music. I can't sing it, I won't sing it rather, <clears throat> but it's worth listening to. It goes like this. It starts with, all we like sheep have gone astray, have turned everyone to his own way. You hear that repeated. All we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray, have gone astray. We have turned, we have turned. It's bouncy. It's like all the sheep bouncing around, going their own way, scattering all across. It goes on and, and with typical Baroque handle style, it's rich and varied going on then. And then slowly the music, with brilliant restraint from the richness, starts to slow down towards the one point. And the Lord hath laid, and the Lord hath laid, and the Lord hath laid, hath laid on him, hath laid on him, hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. One note. Coming all the way down to the one point. What's going on here is caught in the third of my three quotes, one from the late and great John Stott, his marvellous book, The Cross of Christ, about this substitution. In fact, Stott sees, I think, quite incisively that both sin and salvation involve substitution. I quote him. For the essence of sin, he writes, is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. But we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now I know this is not very Christmassy, but it is, in fact, the heart of the Christmas story. The incarnation of God become man was not a royal visit. It was a rescue operation. More like a fire engine rushing to your home than some great one turning up to be welcomed in. The good news of Christmas is the good news of redemption. God reaching down in the person of this servant, this anonymous, despised, humiliated servant, reaching down to lift you up. By his wounds, we're healed. The last passage in our Isaiah series, The Weary World Rejoices, is the most moving of them all.